So we're about halfway point in the book of 1 Samuel, and just over halfway in our series, message 12 uh, of about 20, and yet we have yet to come across the name of David, who is the most important person in the book, but that's about to change today. And most of the rest of the book will tell the story of the the complicated relationship between David and Saul, Israel's first two kings. And, you know, studying the life of David should really grab our attention as David is easily one of the most important figures in the Bible. Uh, If he's not top three, he's top five. He's so important that one honorific titles of Jesus in the Bible is Son of David. Jerusalem in the Bible is often referred to as the city of David. God describes God's self as the God of David. Bethlehem is the town of David. And Israel is called the house of David. So this is an important dude. All right, we better pay attention to his story. So let's read some of the text this morning from uh, chapter 16. You can stand with me just to honor God's words. And if you don't have a a Bible, uh, you can always grab one in the back to use while you're here on Sunday, or we'd love to give one to you. If you're in need of one, feel free to take it home with you. But chapter 16, and just some context, David is likely about 15 years old here, and it's going to be about seven years until he becomes king over all of Israel. So that's kind of where we're at. So we're not going to read all the verses, but I'll skip around a little bit. But we will start in verse 1, where it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. And it says in verse 4 that Samuel did what the Lord said. And then verse 6, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Verse 10, Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord, not chosen, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He's out tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon upon Daniel, David. (laughs) Samuel then went to Ramah. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. So this chapter is really uh, the crux of the book and the main transition as God moves 
on from Saul as his anointed king to uh, David as his anointed king. And so my title, The Tale of Two Kings, The Anointing of God. And it's worth asking, you know, why is such favor bestowed upon this man David? Why does the anointing of God stay with David and his family all the way down the generations until the eventual anointed one, who is Jesus, the son of David, while Saul's family line fades into history? Why does David go down in history as a man after God's own heart and Saul as Israel's first failed king? So I want to look at these questions through the lens of anointing and what we can learn and how we might respond on this side of the new covenant where God's anointing is now available to all. So let's start with, well, what is the anointing? To be anointed for something is to be set apart, to be chosen for a dedicated task and, second part is key, receiving divine equipping for that task through God's Spirit. And in the Old Testament, this is represented by oil being poured upon the one being anointed for the task. Prior to 1 Samuel and the kingship being a part of the Lord's anointed, this, of course, was reserved for the priest in Israel. So in Exodus chapter 30, verses 30 and 31, God says to anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate or dedicate them so that they may serve me as priest. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for the generations to come. Here Samuel anoints David with the horn of oil would have looked something like that. And it says that the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Prior to this, Saul also was anointed by Samuel in chapter 10, verse 1. So it's important to ask, why does Saul lose the anointing of God? And the answer, as we've already learned and as Paul explained last week, is that Saul wants to do things Saul's way rather than God's way, right? Saul does what is good for Saul. We're told many times in the previous chapters that Saul did not obey the commands of the Lord or the word of the Lord. Saul was more worried about his kingdom, his own career and reputation and status and security than God's kingdom. And so the Lord has rejected Saul as king of Israel, and taken away his anointing, his spirit, due to Saul's rebellion. In Samuel's words to Saul in the previous chapter, 15, verse 23, he tells him rebellion that Saul is guilty of is like the sin of divination, or witchcraft, some old translations say. Why such strong language about rebellion? Because rebellion is attempting to use a source other than God and God's anointing. And in that way, we're all guilty of that kind of rebellion. What Samuel is saying is that trusting in our own self, using our own self as a source, is just as bad as seeking a medium or a psychic 
or divination. It's looking to a source other than God and God's anointing to accomplish what we want rather than what God wants. Saul's heart was not humble before the Lord. And therefore, the, the very sad last verse of chapter, chapter 15, the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Saul was the choice of the people, but not of God. His rebellion essentially represented the people's rebellion. But God was willing to give it a try, give them what they wanted, but now it's time for God's choice to select what God calls in chapter 13, verse 14, a man after his own heart. So why did David maintain God's anointing while Saul lost it? Well, I want to spend most of this morning talking about who is this anointing for? And the main requirement for God's anointing, particularly maintaining God's anointing, is a humble heart, humility. The anointing is for the humble in heart, the opposite of a rebellious heart. See, the truth is, David made a lot of mistakes, just like Saul. David didn't receive or maintain God's anointing and blessing because he was necessarily better or even really more well-behaved than Saul. That's not the litmus test for God's anointing. David was massively flawed, right? I mean, adultery and murder come to mind uh, first, just to name a few. But there's something about God's preference for those willing to humble themselves before the Lord. Saul wasn't willing to eventually say, okay, God, I tried it my way. Look where that got me. Now I come in repentance and want to do it your way. Right? We don't get a Psalm 51 from Saul. Instead, he dug in his heels. His pride wouldn't let go, and the result is he essentially goes mad, and he goes down with his pride. Church, I want you to understand how God works in the ways of his kingdom, and David is such a powerful and encouraging example Whereas Saul was the obvious choice that, that made sense in a worldly manner. He's, he's called uh, a man of standing when he's introduced in chapter 9, right? He's the best-looking guy around. He's a head taller than everyone else, but he was not God's choice. Who was God's choice? A lowly shepherd boy, the youngest son of Jesse, who was an afterthought, not even brought before Samuel as a candidate when Samuel comes because he's out tending the sheep. This is just the way God works. And he shows this through his choice of David, that God blesses the weak, not the strong. Power in God's kingdom comes paradoxically through poverty in spirits, humility, and why is this such a prominent theme in the Bible? Why does God seem to have a, a preferential heart almost for the hurting and the broken and the crushed in spirits when it comes to His anointing? Well, because God knows that our troubles, our pain, 
our grief, our abandonment, our adversities, and other challenges, like David, if we let them, are an aid to humility. And humility is the number one requirement for God's anointing. Have you been through trouble? Been through painful situations in life? Are you hurt and grieving? If so, might it be these experiences could open you up to what the Desert Father John Climacus calls the mother of graces, humility. The truth is, humility doesn't seem to be birthed and formed in us by everything going perfect in life, by getting all we ever wanted, living our dreams, having perfect health. Humility is usually gained through adversity and trials, if we let it. And that last phrase is key. I just read yesterday an article of a Mongolian Christian woman, a new convert in Mongolia where there's very few Christians, and she said, quote, I thank God for my poor health because it makes me rely on God's power completely. That's the perspective of humility. The adversities of life, they do one of two things to us, right? They harden us like Saul, or they will humble us like David. And whereas Saul chooses to harden his heart and loses his anointing, David humbles himself before God and receives it. And you know, we're not told very much about David's early life here or his childhood, but we can guess based on what happened here, the fact that they don't even initially bring him out with his other brothers, that David was oft overlooked, that he was a bit of an afterthought, maybe picked on by his brothers. I mean, he was a lowly shepherd boy. And yet God chose humble David as his chosen vessel to lead Israel and eventually his chosen line that would lead to Jesus. Even David's ancestry teaches this point of the the upside-down ways of God's kingdom. Uh, David's father, Jesse, from Bethlehem, was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. And if you know that story, Ruth, you can read the book. It's appropriately the book right before 1 Samuel. Uh, But Ruth, who was an outsider and part of the despised Moabites, Ruth, a migrant farm worker and foreigner who was surviving off leftovers in the field of Bethlehem with no future prospects. Right? Ruth, the daughter-in-law of Naomi, who was a middle-aged, broken-hearted widow. Ruth, of all people, will have a prominent role in God's great salvation plan. And from her line, Israel's greatest king, David, comes and ultimately comes the Savior of the world. See, the world's ways are not God's ways. As I often say, God works through unexpected people and unexpected places in unexpected ways. No one in Israel would have even considered David, this shepherd boy, to be king, and yet that is who God chooses. And of course, similarly, we could look to Jesus. And his humble 
beginnings. They would never give any clue that he was to be the Son of God, right? Born to a couple of nobodies. Born essentially homeless, a refugee in Egypt as a child. Then growing up in Nazareth where it was said that nothing good could come from. But that was God's chosen way. And the story of David teaches us that God's anointing, his favor, is for the humble in heart. For only the humble in heart can know the hearts of our humble God. God is not like us. Verse 7 of this chapter, of course, makes it clear. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 5.3, blessed are the poor in spirit. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.5, 5, God shows favor to the humble. James teaches in James chapter 2, verse 5, that God chooses those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith. They receive his anointing. So who is the anointing for? Well, anyone and everyone who would come before God with a humble heart and say, God, I am utterly dependent on the anointing of your spirits to do your work and will. As we see here in verse 13, the anointing is closely connected with the spirits of the Lord. For it says, after Samuel anointed him, from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And how powerful was David's anointing? Well, we see in just the next verse, verse 14, that the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul and an evil spirit tormented him. But David's anointing is so strong that just him being in the same room as Saul, playing the harp or lyre, brings relief to Saul's mental torment and drives away the evil spirits. And so in an ironic twist, the anointing that left Saul and was given to David is then used to bring healing to Saul, just another sign of God's graciousness. And so the logical question to close with is, do you want this anointing? Do you want an anointing so strong that when you do ordinary things like strum an instrument, it brings healing to people's souls. Makes me think, think of Acts 5, verses 15 and 16, that the anointing on the apostles was so strong that people brought the sick and those tormented by impure spirits into the streets and laid them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them as some of them passed by and all of them were healed. I mean, just his shadow that's an anointing. And the beauty of the post-Pentecost church is that this anointing, this power of the Spirit that sets us apart and equips us for God's work is available to all who would humble themselves before God. As it says in Acts 2, young and old, men and women, sons and daughters, they're all eligible. In other words, if you're saying, who, me? God's saying, yeah, you. The anointing that both Saul and David received was for their vocational work and their calling as position of king. And we all should seek the same anointing for our vocational callings, 
to be anointed as a teacher, as a parent, as a spouse, as a tradesperson, a business owner, an artist, a caregiver, a restaurant worker, a friend, a volunteer, fixing things, making things, whatever it is, submitting it to God and saying, God, set me apart for this dedicated task and equip me by your spirit for the task that I might bring your light, love, and life in everything I do, everywhere I go, to everyone I meet, that my work would be anointed like that. And God's not limited by what you do. Seeking God's anointing is or should be an act of humility, just saying, God, I need your spirits to do this in a way that will bring glory to you. And the symbol of oil as anointing, it, of course, carries over into the New Testament where it's mentioned many times, most notably in James 5, where we're instructed to anoint others with, the, with oil in the name of the Lord. So I don't always understand all of God's ways, and lots of what we talked about today shows that our ways are not like God's ways. So I just want to humble myself and say, I don't fully understand how this works, but let's anoint you with oil as an outward sign of our inner desperation for the Holy Spirit, as a way to say, I want to be set apart for a dedicated task, and it could be anything, and I want to receive divine empowerment for that task. So that's what we're going to do for those who, who want to. We're going to anoint with oil and pray. Uh, just as it happened for David, we're going to pray that the Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you before you leave today.